You can be turning to Genesis chapter 3. Last week we concluded our time in the book of Psalms. And this week we move to Advent. If you're like our family at least, you know we're buying gifts. We're starting to wrap gifts and put them under the tree at home. You know, but as believers we remember that Christmas is really not celebrating the gifts under the tree. It's not even celebrating the lights that we like to look at. Guess what? It's not even celebrating our family get-togethers. We celebrate Jesus. That's the focus of Christmas. And so I'm convinced that if we put our focus on anything else, we're tilting towards idolatry. And so what we want to do this Christmas season is to remain centered on the person and work of Christ as the long-awaited Savior, Redeemer, and friend of sinners. And so I use there the term long-awaited on purpose, but I'm not referring to the 364 days that we wait from Christmas to Christmas. That's not the long-awaited Jesus that I mean. I'm referring to the thousands of years that mankind waited for God's promise of a Savior to be fulfilled. We live in an era on the other side of the cross that we can kind of look back and see the events of time happen in order that they did. The people who wrote the Bible, they didn't see this in its fullness like we have it now. Now, kids, I have a question for you that Jason did not cover today, and it really um, is going to take you back if you are an Awana participant to a couple of years ago. What does the word incarnation mean? I know this was a long time ago. Tabby, do you remember? Do you have a good definition? Share with us. God became man, she said. You're right. Uh, how many of you guys have heard the term in the flesh? So if maybe, maybe we're at a Christmas and we're talking about our silly uncle who's not there yet, and all of a sudden he walks through the door. And maybe kids, maybe you hear one of the adults say, ah, oh, there he is in the flesh. So we were talking about him and he wasn't here yet. Now all of a sudden our silly uncle steps into the scene and he's here. He's here in the flesh. So we're not talking about somebody who isn't here anymore. We're talking about specifically about a God who took on flesh, who became man. So Jesus, with that analogy, Jesus is God in the flesh here with us. And so we sing about this during Christmas. I just want to point out three different Christmas carols. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I think we sang this last week. If you remember that song, the third verse of it says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Today, we would maybe say it a little differently than that. Maybe we would say, hey, look. Look how God, see how God took on flesh. How he became one of us. How it pleased the Son, to be with mankind because He is our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another song is, O Come All You Faithful. One of those verses says, Jesus, to Thee be all glory given, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. I love how this Christmas hymn captures the essence of John chapter 1. In fact, you can be turning, put your ribbon or your finger in Genesis 3 and turn to John chapter 1 with me. We'll be there in just a moment. 
Let me read from the first couple of verses, though. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm not going to go through every Christmas carol. That would maybe be a fun study to do and point out Jesus. But let me give you one more. This is one of my favorites that we don't often sing. Come thou long expected Jesus. Listen to two of the verses. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. The baby that was born in the womb of a woman was born the king of everything. Maybe you've thought about that before, but just let that sink in again. The baby who was born from the womb of the woman was born the king of everything. He didn't come to be served, though. Philippians 2 tells us that he came to serve. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I appreciate the song that we just sang, Christmas Has Its Cradle, and how it connects birth with the cross, with the the empty tomb, and with a risen Savior. It connects Christmas and Easter. What a What a joy that we have in Christ to see those things. Now, before I I get ahead of myself too much here, let's revisit the reason why I quoted these Christmas hymns. And because it's this, we celebrate Jesus, who is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, we just spent about 10 months studying the book of Psalms. And this is an Old Testament book that stretches about 1,500 years in its authorship And it was written about 1,500 years before Christ was born. We've reviewed the genres just about every week with the kids, and so we're not going to go through all of that sort of thing. But surely you remember that some of the texts that we studied through in the book of Psalms were messianic in nature. Now, that means you can see the connection, messianic, messiah. Let me just explain a little bit what that means and kind of explain why this series is called The Shadows of the Savior. Okay, As you kind of follow the timeline of biblical history, we come across characters whose lives we would call are maybe a type of Christ. Think about Joseph from the Old Testament. Abandoned, mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery, left for dead. And yet in the end, God exalted him highly so that many people would be saved. You see the correlation between Joseph and Jesus. He's a type of Christ from the Old Testament. We also see pictures of Jesus in other parts of biblical history, kind of like the Passover lamb. You remember the Israelites were told to spread the blood of the spotless lamb. And when the wrath of God came through Egypt and the death angel, those who were covered by the blood will be passed over. You can see the correlation, and we can see a picture of Christ in the Passover lamb. We also see shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. And we looked at one of these in Psalm chapter 98, verses 1 through 3. Let me remind us and read those together. The psalmist says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Remember the analogy of the right hand? 
The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You can see Jesus in Psalm chapter 98. Now, there have been scores of books, maybe even hundreds of books written on the topic of types and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. And those are, all, there's, those are of great value to us as believers. I've got a few I could recommend to you if you're interested. Uh, the prophecies that were written of Jesus were written to address the original audience of when they were written, and they concern stuff in their own time. But we know that they also point forward to more. They point forward to something else, to events of the life of Christ. And so for the next four Sundays, and Christmas Eve as well, we're going to look at passages from Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Numbers, uh, even Genesis that we'll look at today, but that's not it. There are other texts, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, Hosea 11, Zechariah 9, Psalm 2, Psalm 22. Those are just a short beginning list of all of the prophecies that point forward to Jesus. In fact, here's a statistic for you. You may have heard this before. It's been shown that over 350 prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Over 350 of those were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. But I, I want I want you to understand, this isn't just your pastor up here making these random generalizations and connecting these things. It's not just me. It's also not just a bunch of other delusional Christians trying to make the Bible say what we want it to say. As soon as Jesus enters the scene as an adult, we find and run into somebody who saw him and immediately recognized that he was the long-awaited Messiah. So in John chapter 1, I want you to look and see after the first uh, 18 or so verses um, where there's a great explanation of who Jesus is. He's the Word became flesh. What a, a great passage that is at the beginning. But we kind of get into where Jesus starts to call his disciples. I'm not referring to John the Baptist here. Although when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, what did he say? I just imagine he jumps up, you know, he wore camel skin, and he's probably got long hair and a big beard, and he just jumps up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, that's a good point. When Elizabeth and Mary were together for the first time, John the Baptist recognized Christ's child even in the womb and leapt. So I'm not talking about John the Baptist even though. Even though we know the, the author of John recognized this, right? He already said, hey, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that John did see it that way. But the person that we read about at the end of John chapter 1 was Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida. That was the same town that Simon and his brother Andrew were from. Jesus caught up to him and he said two words to Philip. Two words is all that it took to change Philip's life. What were they? Follow me. That's it. He said, follow me. And Philip knew. And because he knew, what was the next thing that he did? He went and he found his friend Nathaniel. He said, man, this is, this is too good for me to keep to myself. I need to go and tell my friends. He wanted Nathaniel to meet Jesus too. And what he says to Nathaniel had to have been shocking in that day. Look at verse 45, John chapter 1, verse 45. And look at what Philip said to Nathanael. He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, 
We found him. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you see why that was so shocking in that time? Philip was convinced that this man Jesus was who all of the Old Testament writings, the law and the prophets, were pointing towards. That's what they were talking about. They're talking about this guy, Jesus, who we just met. That's what the law and the prophets, that phrase that's used there, that's what it meant. It meant the Old Testament scriptures before the New Testament scriptures were written. And Philip understood immediately after two words that Jesus was the guy who they were all talking about. So you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take modern day pastors. You don't even have to take Philip's word for it. Because Jesus said this about himself. You can jot these down. I think these are in your notes. Let me read them quickly. This is what Jesus says. Remember, he's on the way, on the road to Emmaus. After his death, burial, resurrection, he appears to two disciples. We're not told who. And he's walking with them and he's talking with them. And this is what it says. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on in that chapter, verse 44, Jesus, he appears in the upper room. Remember where the disciples are afraid and they're hiding out. And Jesus appears to them and he, they give him a piece of fish and he eats it. And then he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Written about me, he says. And then in John chapter 5, verse 46, as Jesus was talking with some of the Jews who hated him, they wanted to kill him. He said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So it's not just, it's not just me. It's not just biblical authors. It's Jesus himself, God in the flesh, who says that's all the Old Testament, all the writings of the prophets and the law. That's all about Jesus. So that's what I'm hoping to make clear so far. The authors of these Christmas carols that we sing, they believed this to be true. Jesus himself taught all of these things. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus as the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior. And so all of Scripture points to Christ as Emmanuel, which we've already said means God with us. So today, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at a passage that contains what I understand to be the first shadow of the Savior. Genesis 3, verse 15. This is, this is right in the middle of the curses that come as a result of sin. Let me read it and then we're going to ask God's blessing again on his word. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we've already determined that this is about your son who though he was though he was perfect god he did not count it too much to come and join us in our humanity and so lord uh, as we look deeper into these things in genesis i pray that we would have a new understanding of your coming a joyful expectation of your second coming Lord, and that we would be able to see and identify Jesus in so many more places in your word because it all looks to him. It all points to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So when we 
we're kind of jumping right into a, a historical narrative in the book of Genesis here. And when we do that sort of thing, it's important to keep in mind that the recorded history that we have here doesn't always move at the pace of life that we're used to. Okay, there are times when there are hundreds of years that are only captured in just a few short sentences in Scripture. But then there are other chapters and and, uh, books of the Bible that focus entirely on just a couple of months or maybe even days of time. So keep that in mind as we read. You know, we might prefer to have a more straightforward and organized timeline of events and people, but God in his wisdom has given it to us this way. This is what we have, and if this is what God has divinely inspired, then it's good for us. It's right for us. So let's just get an overview of Genesis 3 for 15 for a minute. Ask the question, who is speaking and who's being spoken to? These are good things to think through when we're reading scripture, especially when we jump into the middle of this here. Well, who is speaking here? Somebody shout it out. And who is God speaking to? He's speaking to the serpent, right? He's speaking to Satan who taken the form of a serpent. And so we start here in the garden with Adam and Eve and with God and with Satan. And and we don't have to go through the whole story. You guys uh, hopefully surely know the story. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam, with eyes wide open, followed Eve into sin. And both of them, when called onto the carpet about their sin, tried to blame somebody else, didn't they? Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve and God himself. Not a good track record so far. Um, but I think it's important that we point something out here. This is something that I just kind of realized this week. The order of events is important. Look at the order of events in this biblical history here. It, it was after they had sinned, and you can scan back a few verses in chapter 3. It was even after they had sinned that God came looking for them to walk with them in the garden. I think there's some significance to that. They had realized that they had messed up. They also had realized that their attempt at covering themselves with fig leaves wasn't going to cut it. And so when God came looking for them, he said, "Where, Adam, where are you? And what did Adam and Eve do? They did what every child who knows they've gotten in trouble do. They run and hide. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They ran and they hid. Now, we also have to ask the question, do we think that when God asked Adam, where are you, that God didn't really know where they were? No, of course not. You as parents understand this. Your, your child is hiding in the closet and you can see their foot sticking out and you say, hey, where are you? Like, it's not because you don't know where they are. You're giving them a chance to confess and repent, right? That is a grace. That is a kindness of God. And I think we see that in the Genesis account here. God knew where Adam was. He didn't, it's not like he didn't, he couldn't find them. The all-knowing God knew where they were, and he also knew that now a gulf had been made between him and man. And it was a gulf that he himself was going to have to bridge. So the question of, Adam, where are you, was meant to stir Adam's sense of being lost. Think about that. The question was meant to lead Adam to confess his sin. The question was meant to express God's sorrow over their now sinful condition. 
The question was meant to affirm the accountability that we have before God, and it was meant to show that God seeks after sinful men. Well, because of sin, God begins then in about verse 14 to explain the consequences of the curse. Adam, Eve, the serpent, indeed all of creation was now affected and infected because of sin. Now it's interesting to note that the judgment of Satan here that we're talking about actually contains a hint of redemption of mankind even before Adam and Eve were ever spoken judgment over. There's redemption all throughout this. Now the first half of the verse that we read, the first half of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is kind of general in nature. Look at that with me. It says, I will put enmity which is hostility. Enmity is hatred. It's conflict. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So you here is Satan. God is speaking this to Satan. I will put enmity between your offspring and that of the woman. Now, who was the woman? There was only one at the moment. That was Eve. So there was going to be conflict between the children of the devil I hope that's not offensive to you. That's what Jesus calls them in John chapter 8. There's going to be hate, there's going to be hatred between children of the devil and between children of Eve. That was, that was the curse. There would be an ongoing spiritual battle raging between the ungodly children of evil and the godly children of the woman. Those, the the godly people are described in 1 John chapter 3 as those who fear God, obey his word, and those who love others. Now, the second half of the verse that we read in verse 15 goes from general to more specific. Look at that with me. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's not just offspring general anymore. There's a particular offspring that is being identified here. He shall bruise your head. Now, shall bruise kind of conveys a... an event that is future that hasn't fully happened yet. It's not yet been completed bruise maybe some of your translations might have um strike or uh crush maybe in there those are both okay words they're appropriate but the same verb is used in both so we can't say one is going to bruise and one is going to crush i don't think as good bible scholars and and learners we can do that they're the same word in the hebrew and so it's one or the other and it applies for both so The difference comes, I think, here in where the person is bruised, okay, or struck or crushed. A particular seed of the woman will have his what bruised? His heel. But Satan will have his head bruised. Now, you know that a heel injury can be painful, but it's usually not fatal. However, head injuries can very easily become Fatal, And so I think there's some difference there, and it vividly implies that the man, the seed of the woman, will bruise, crush, strike, deliver a death blow from above. So before God even pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve for their sin, he revealed his plan to defeat the evil one through one unique man who would come from the family of Eve. This man would be wounded by Satan's attacks, but he would not be defeated. And we see this in Isaiah Chapter 53, verse 5, he said that this man would be wounded for our transgressions, 
He would be crushed. He would be bruised for our iniquities. So whose heel will Satan bruise? And who will bruise Satan's head? Well, by now we should all know the answer to this. We've been talking about it all morning. It's Jesus. It's the long-awaited Messiah. Genesis 3.15 points out that the promised one, that special man from the woman's seed, would destroy the works of the devil, even though he would, would be wounded in the process. So this, I think, is the first redemptive promise that God made to mankind right here in Genesis. And I think it's important to see it this way because immediately after the fall, like right away, God is looking for his children and he's already made a way to redeem them. His plan that he had in mind from eternity past before anything was created was starting to come to fruition and he was starting to lay the groundwork even right at the beginning. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And so this makes... Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. This is the first shadow of the Savior. You guys are familiar with this story. I'm not probably teaching you anything you haven't heard already. It's probably very familiar to you, but there's more here that I think we need to see. Quickly, the the fullest fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, it wasn't completely fulfilled in Jesus' birth, though, was it? Because there's no bruising or crushing in the birth story. It's at the other end of Christ's earthly life that we see the fulfillment of God's promise in this text. More than three decades after his miraculous birth, his first coming here, Jesus was hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem with a crown of thorns jammed on his head, nails through his wrists, and put through his feet. And as he stretched his body upward, struggling for every last breath by pushing against the nail in his feet, his heel was probably literally bruised. And I I just wonder, when I think about that scenario, I wonder when he breathed his last and they took his body down from the cross and they put it in the grave, I wonder if Satan thought that he had won. I wonder if he believed that he defeated Righteousness. If he'd overcome the light with darkness. Because we know the story. Praise God, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He came up out of the tomb, and so when Jesus conquered death, he crushed the head of the serpent. The moment he he stepped out of that tomb, he struck a death blow on the enemy. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, remember, this is Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's the incarnation. That through death he might destroy or crush the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The promise was given when mankind fell, and it was fulfilled when Christ rose up from the grave. What a cool way to think about that. When mankind fell, this is when the curse was given. And when Jesus rose up from the grave, he destroyed the works of the enemy. He destroyed the work of sin and Satan. But if you haven't noticed, this is kind of one of those situations that we read sometimes about in scripture. It's that kind of, it's already happened, but it's still yet to come kind of a thing. And it can be a little bit confusing, but remember We've been set free 
from the bondage of sin and death, haven't we? By Christ's sacrifice, we have been set free. The moment we believe, there is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, we still wrestle against sin every day, don't we? There is further redemption, complete redemption waiting for us on the other side of our last breath. And so it's that it's already happened kind of a thing. Ephesians 2 says that we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. But yet when we look in the mirror, we don't see somebody who's seated in the heavenlies with Christ, do we? We see the sinful person that we really are. And so it's that already still to come kind of thing. The truth is that Christ has already destroyed the devil by rising again. But the enemy's complete destruction will be fully realized on judgment day. It's already happened and yet it's still to come. But the, the resurrection of Christ has demonstrated Christ's power over the grave and it guaranteed Satan's doom. It was coming. It started there. It began, but it's still coming. When mankind failed to obey the terms of the covenant of works or the covenant of life, it said, obey God and live. Didn't take long and they failed. They broke that covenant, didn't they? Well, it didn't take long for God to roll out a new covenant, the covenant of grace, by promising a Savior right here. Right at the beginning, Genesis 3.15, he's promising a Savior through the lineage of Eve. That Savior is the seed of Eve who was bruised and killed, friend, in your place, but who victoriously conquered sin and death and Satan and is calling you now to find life and purpose in Him. That's what we celebrate when our friends Casey and Dylan just came up. We celebrate the new life that they have in Christ. He had been searching for you guys. And now you have His life and His purpose. And He's calling everyone who hears the message of the gospel to find their life and purpose in Him today. This is... The ball starts rolling in Genesis and it's going to start to pick up steam and we're going to get to Jeremiah and we're going to get to Isaiah. First, we're going to stop in numbers, but we're going to get to these things. And my prayer and hope is that this just kind of snowballs. It's a good analogy for December, right? Though it's like going to be 70 degrees this week, but I hope it just just snowballs into this chorus of joy and thankfulness as we celebrate and look at shadows of the Savior. Praise God for the bruised Savior. Praise God for the crushed enemy. Praise God for the incarnation. Praise God for the empty tomb. Praise God for a risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, we look in Genesis and we see redemption. Lord, even in the midst of of obvious rebellion and it didn't get much better after adam and eve left the garden there was there was murder and there was wickedness and you washed it all away in the flood and you started over and there continued to be wickedness and and lord in your plan in your wisdom it the 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 reason was christ the purpose the solution was jesus and so now it's the same what we do is we look to him and we believe and in doing so we are gloriously and forever saved. And it's not because of us. <laughs> we don't do much of anything in the process. We bring our sinfulness, but you exchange it for your righteousness. And Lord, that's, 
an exchange that we, I hope we are all willing to make and ready to give. Lord, we thank you for redemption. Yes, sin brings a curse. Every one of us are cursed because of it. Every one of us dies because of sin. We earn that because of our sin. But Lord, because of the redemption we find in belief in Jesus, Lord, we are graciously given under the covenant of grace. We're given redemption and salvation. And so, Lord, we just kind of, we sit back in all of it today. Even seeing that in the garden, even after the sin, Lord, you were still calling your people to come and walk with you. Lord, you're calling people now today, even in this place, listening this morning, to come and to walk with you in newness of life. Lord, I pray that you would be the one that grants repentance and faith and that you would establish new life in many because of Jesus today. In his name we pray, amen.